0: Hello, everyone, welcome back to my channel. Swisteria here. We're going to start off because this will be December. So, we're going to start with the night before Christmas. It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled, all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in a kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains. For a long winter nap When out on the lawn There arose such a clatter I sprang from my bed To see what was the matter Away to the window I flew like a flash Tore open the shutters And threw up the sash The moon on the breast Of the new fallen snow Gave a lustre of day To objects below When what to my wondering eyes did appear, but a miniature sleigh, an eight tiny reindeer, with a little old driver so lovely and quick. I knew in a moment he must be Saint Nick, more rapid than eagles, as coarse as they came, and he whistled and shouted, and called them by name. Now Dasher, now dancer. Now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the course they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head, and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back. And he looked like a peddler, just opening his back. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His draw little mouth was drawn up like a bow. And the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying a finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose, he sprang to his sleigh. To his team gave a whistle. And away they all flew, like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, Here he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, And to all a good night. And that will be the start of December for us. So I do hope that you like these kind of Christmas um, poems or whatever you want to call them, because I do. So now we're going to go on to Beatrix Potter's, the tailor of Gloucestershire. In the town of swords and paddywigs and full-skirted coats with flowered lappets, when gentlemen wore ruffles and gold lace waistcoats, a parasoy and taffet, there lived a tailor in Gloucester. He sat in the window of a little shop in Westgate Street, cross-legged on a table from morning till dark. All day long, while the light lasted, he sewed and snippeted, peace out his satin, and pompadour, and lute-string stuffs had strange names, and were very expensive in the days of the tailor of Gloucester. But although he sewed, from silk for his neighbours, he himself was very, very poor. He cut his coats without waste, according to his embroidered cloth. They were very small ends, and snippets that lay about upon the table. Two narrow breaths for naught, except waistcoats for mice, and the tailor. One bitter cold day near Christmas time, the tailor began to make a coat, a coat of cherry coloured cord of silk embroidered with pansies and roses, and a cream coloured satin waistcoat for the mayor of Gloucester. The tailor worked and work, and he talked to himself, No breath at all, and cut on the cross. It is no breath at all, tippets for mice, and ribbons for mobs for mice, said the tailor of Gloucester. When the snowflakes came down against a small leather window panes and shut out the light the tailor had done his day's work, all the silk and satin lay cut out open on the table. There were twelve pieces for the coat and four pieces for the waistcoat, and there were pocket flaps and cuffs and bottoms, all in order. For the lining of the coat there was fine yellow taffeta, and for the buttonholes of the waistcoat there were cherry coloured twist, and everything was ready to sew together in the morning, all measured and sufficient, except that. There was wanting just one single skin of cherry coloured twisted silk. The tailor came out of his shop at dark. No one lived there at nights, but little brown mice, and they ran in and out without any keys. For behind the wooden waistcoats of the old houses in Gloucester, there are little mouse staircases and secret trapdoors, and the mice run from house to house through those long narrow passages. But the tailor came out of his shop and shuffled home through the snow. And although it was not a big house, the tailor was so poor, he only rented the kitchen. He lived alone with his cat. It was called Simpkin. Meow, said the cat, when the tailor opened the door. Meow, the tailor replied. Simpkin, we shall make our fortune, but I am worn to raveling. Take this grout, which is our last four pence. And Simpkin Take a china pipkin, buy a penneth of bread, a penneth of milk, and a penneth of sausage. And, oh, simpkin, with the last penny of a fourpence, buy me one penneth of cherry-coloured silk. But do not lose the last penny of the fourpence, simpkin, or I am undone and worn to the thread paper, for I haven't more twist. The simpkin again said, meow and took the grout and the pipkin, and went out into the dark. The tailor was very tired and beginning to be ill. He sat down by the hearth and talked to himself about the wonderful coat. I shall make my fortune to be cut by us, the mayor of Gloucester, to be married on Christmas Day in the morning, and he half-ordered a coat and an embroidered waistcoat. Then the tailor started, for suddenly interrupting him from the dresser at the other side of the kitchen came a number of little noises. Tip-tap, tip tap, tip-tap tip, tap, tip. Now what can that be? said the tailor of Gloucester, jumping up from his chair. The tailor crossed the kitchen and stood quite still beside the dresser, listening and peering through his spectacles. This is very peculiar, said the tailor of Gloucester, and he lifted up the teacup, which was upside down. One outstepped "'a little live lady mouse, "'and made a curtsy to the tailor. "'Then she hopped away down off the dresser "'and under the wainscot "'The tailor sat down again by the fire, "'warming his poor cold hands, "'but all at once from the dresser there came other noises. "'A tip-tap, tap-tap-tip, tap tap. tap, tip, tip, tap tip. "'This is a passing extraordinary,' said the tailor of Gloucester, "'and turned over.' another teacup, which was upside down. One stepped out, a little gentleman mouse, and made a bow to the tailor. And out from under the teacups and from under bowls and basins stepped other and more little mice, who hopped away down of the dresser and under the wenscot. The tailor sat down, close over the fire, lamenting one and twenty butungalls of cherry as silk, to be finished by noon of Saturday, and this is Tuesday evening, was it right to let loose those mice? Undoubtedly the property of Simpkin. Alack, I am undone, for I have no more twist. The little mice came out again and listened to the tailor. They took notice of the pattern of that wonderful coat. They whispered to one another about the taffeta lining and about the little mouse tippets. And then suddenly... They all ran away together, down the passage behind the wenscot, squeaking and calling to one another as they ran from house to house. Not one mouse was left in the tailor's kitchen when Simpkin came back. He sat down the pipkin of milk upon the dresser and looked suspiciously at the teacups. He wanted his supper of little fat mouse. Simkin said the tailor, "'where is my twist?' But Simpkin had a little parcel privately in the teapot, and spit and growled at the tailor. And if Simpkin had been able to talk, he would have asked, Where is my mouse? Alas, I am undone, said the tailor of Gloucester, and went sadly to bed. All that night long, Simpkin hunted and searched through the kitchen, peeping into cupboards and under wainscot, and into the teapot where he had hidden that twist. But still, He found never a mouse. The poor old tailor was very ill with a fever, tossing and turning in his four-post bed, and still in his dreams he mumbled, No more twist, no more twist. What should become of the cherry coloured coat? Who should come to sew it when the window was barred and the door was fast locked? Out of the doors the market folks went trudging through the snow to buy the geese and turkeys and to bake the Christmas pies, but there would be no dinner for Simpkin and the poor old tailor of Gloucester. The tailor lay ill for three days and nights, and then it was Christmas Eve, and very late at night, and still Simpkin wanted his mice, and meowed as he stood beside the four post bed. But it is in the old story that all the beasts can talk in the night, between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in the morning, though there are very few folk that can hear them, or know what they are saying. When the cathedral clock struck twelve, there was an answer, like the echo of the chimes, and Simpkin heard it, and came out of the tailor's door and wandered about in the snow, from all the roofs and gables and old wooden houses in Gloucester came a thousand merry voices, singing the old Christmas rhymes. All the old songs that ever I heard of, and some that I don't know, like Whittington's Bells. Under the wooden caves the starlings and sparrows sang of Christmas pies, the jackdaws woke up in the cathedral tower, and all through it was the middle of the night throstles and robins sang, and air was quite full of little twittering tunes but it was all rather provoking to poor hungry Simpkin. From the tailor's shop in Westgate came a glow of light, and when a Simpkin crept up to peep in at the window it was full of candles. There was a snippeting of scissors and a snippeting of thread, a snappeting here and there, and little mouse voices sang loudly and gaily. Four and twenty tailors went to catch a snail. The best man amongst them does not touch a tail. She put out her arms like little kylo cow. Run, tailors, run, or shall will have ear now. Then, without pause, the little mouse voices went on again. Say my lady's oatmeal, grind, my lady's flour. Put it in a chestnut, let it stand an hour. Mew, mew, interrupted Snipkin, and he scratched at the door. But the key was under the tailor's pillow, he could not get in. The little mice only laughed and tried another tune. Three little mice sat down to spin, pussy passed by and peeped in what are you at my fine little men making coats for gentlemen shall i come in and cut off your threads oh no miss pussy you would bite off our heads mew scratch scratch scuffled simkin on the window sill while the little mice inside sprang to their feet and all began to shout all at once in twittering voices no more twist no more twist And they barred up the window shutters and shut out Simpkin. Simpkin came away from the shop and went home, considering in his mind he found the poor old tailor, without fever, sleeping peacefully. Then Simpkin went on tiptoe and took a little parcel of silk out of the teapot and took it in the moonlight. He felt quite ashamed of his badness compared with the good mice. When the tailor awoke in the morning, the first thing which he saw upon the patchwork quilt was a skin of cherry-coloured twisted silk, and beside his bed stood repentant Simpkin. The sun was shining on the snow when the tailor got up and dressed, and came out into the street with Simpkin running before him. Alack, said the tailor, I had my twist, but no more strength, no time. Then we'll serve to make... "'Me one single buttonhole, for this is Christmas Day in the morning. "'The mayor of Gloucester shall be married by noon. "'And where is his cherry-coloured coat?' "'He unlocked the door of the little shop in Westgate Street, "'and Simpkin ran in, like a cat that expects something. "'But there was no one there, not even one little brown mouse. "'But upon the table, oh joy, the tailor gave a shout. "'There!' Where he had left plain cuttings of silk, there lay the most beautiful coat and embroidered satin waistcoat that ever were worn by the mayor of Gloucester. Everything was finished except just one single cherry-coloured buttonhole. And where that buttonhole was wanting, there was pinned a scrap of paper with these words. In little teeny-weeny writing, no more twist, and from then began the look of the tailor of Gloucester. He grew quite stout and he grew quite rich. He made the most wonderful waistcoats for all the rich merchants of Gloucester and for all the fine gentlemen of the country road. Never were seen such ruffles, such embroidered cuffs and lappets, but his buttonholes were the greatest triumph of all. The stitches of those buttonholes were so neat. So neat. I wonder how they could be stitched by an old man in spectacles with the crooked old fingers and a tail as thimble. The stitches of those buttonholes were so small, so small. They looked as if they had been made by little, teeny mice. And that is the end of that story. Thank you for listening, and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. This is a very old tale, it's by Hans Christian, by the way. The Little Match Girl It was so terribly cold, snow was falling, and it was almost dark. Evening came on, the last evening of the year, in the cold and gloom, the poor little girl, bareheaded and barefoot, was walking through the street, Of course, when she had left her house, she'd had slippers on, but what good had they been? They were very big slippers, way too big for her, for they belonged to her mother. The little girl had lost them running across the road, where two carriages had rattled by terribly fast. One slipper she'd not been able to find again, and a boy had run off with the other, saying... He could use it very well as a cradle some day when he had children of his own. And so the little girl walked on her naked feet, which were quite red and blue with the cold. In an old apron she carried several packages of matches. She held a box of them in her hand. No one had bought any from her all day long, and no one had given her a cent. Shivering with cold and hunger, she crept along, a picture of misery, poor little girl. The snowflakes fell in her long fair hair, which hung in a pretty curls over her neck. In all the windows, lights were shining, and there were a wonderful smell of roast goose, for it was New Year's Eve. Yes, she thought of that. In a corner formed by two houses, one of which projected further out, into the street than the other. She sat down and drew up her little feet under her. She was getting colder and colder, but did not dare to go home, for she had sold no matches, nor earned a single cent, and her father would surely beat her. Besides, it was cold at home, for they had nothing over them but a roof, through which the wind whistled, even though the biggest cracks had been stuffed with straw and rags. Her hands were almost dead with cold, Oh, how much one little match might warm her if she could only take one from the box and rub it against the wall and warm her hands. She drew one out. How it spluttered and burned. It made a warm, bright flame like a little candle as she held her hands over it and it gave a strange light. It really seemed to the little girl as if she was sitting before a great iron stove with shining brass knobs and a brass cover. How wonderfully the fire burned. How comfortable it was. The youngster stretched out her feet to warm them too. Then the little flame went out. The stove vanished and she had only the remains of the burnt match in her hand. She struck another match against the wall. It burned brightly when the light fell upon the wall, it became transparent like a thin veil. And she could see through it, into a room. On the table, a snow-white cloth was spread. On it stood a shining dinner service. The roast goose steamed gloriously, stuffed with apples and prunes. And what was still better? The goose jumped down from the dish and waddled along the floor with a knife and fork in its breast. Right over to the little girl. Then the match went out, and she could only see thick, cold wall. She lighted another match. Then she was sitting under the most beautiful Christmas tree. It was much larger and much more beautiful than the one she had seen last Christmas through the glass door at the rich merchant's home. Thousands of candles burned on the green branches, and coloured pictures like those in the print shops looked down at her. The little girl reached both her hands towards them. Then the match went out, but the Christmas lights mounted higher. She saw them now as bright stars in the sky. One of them fell down, forming a long line of fire. Now someone is dying, thought the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only person who had loved her, and who was now dead, had told her that when a star fell down, a soul went up to God. She rubbed in the match against the wall. It became bright again, and in the glow, the old grandmother stood clear and shining, kind and lovely. Grandmother, cried the child, Oh, take me with you. I know you will disappear on the match, burned out. You will vanish like the warm stove and the wonderful rose goose and the beautiful big Christmas tree. And she quickly struck the whole bundle of matches for she wished to keep her grandmother with her and the matches burned with such a glow that it became brighter than daylight. Grandmother had never been so grand and beautiful. She took the little girl in her arms and both of them flew in brightness and joy above the earth very, very high, and up there was neither cold, nor did she have hunger, nor fear, they were with God. But in the corner, leaning against the wall, sat the little girl, with red cheeks and smiling mouth, frozen to death on the last evening of the old year. The New Year's sun rose upon the little pathetic figure. The child sat there stiff and cold, holding the matches of which one bundle was almost burned. She wanted to warm herself, the people said. No one imagined what beautiful things she had seen and how happily she had gone with her old grandmother into the bright new year. The end. It's a very um, beautiful story. Seems like a sad one, but not really is it, because she didn't have a good life on earth. So she became one with God and her grandma, where she was much, much happier. So just bear that in mind. Sometimes we have to set the soul free because there's too much pain for it to bear on earth. Especially at such a young innocent age, anyway. Thank you for listening, and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. So, this one's called A Letter from Santa Claus, by Mark Twain. My dear Susie Clemens, I've received and read all the letters which you and your little sister have written to me by the hand of your mother and your nurses. I've also read those which you little people have written me with your own hands. For although you did not use any characters that are in grown people's alphabet, you use the characters that all children in all lands on earth and in the twinkling stars use. And as all my subjects in the moon are children and use no character but that, you will easily understand that I can read "'your and your baby sisters at jagged and fantastic marks without any trouble at all. "'But I had trouble with those letters which you dictated through your mother and the nurses, "'for I am a foreigner and cannot read English writing very well. "'You will find that I made no mistakes about the things which you and your baby ordered in your own letters. "'I went down your chimney at midnight when you were asleep and delivered them all myself.' and kiss both of you too, because you're good children, well-trained, nice-mannered, and about the most obedient little people I ever saw. But in the letter which you dictated, there were some words which I could not make out for certain, and one or two small orders which I could not fill because I ran out of stock. Our last lot of kitchen furniture for dolls had just gone to the very poor little child in the North Star away up, in the cold country, above the Big Dipper. Your mama can show you that star, and you can say, Little Snowflake, for that is the child's name. I'm glad you got that furniture, for you need it more than I. That is, you must write that with your own hand. And Snowflake will write you an answer. If you only spoke it, she wouldn't hear you make your letter light and thin, for the distance is great and the postage very heavy. There was a word or two in your mamma's letter which I couldn't be certain of. I took it to be a trunk full of doll's clothes. Is that it? I will call at your kitchen door about nine o'clock this morning to inquire, but I must not see anybody, and I must not speak to anybody but you. When the kitchen doorbell rings, George must be blindfolded and sent to open the door. Then he must go back to the dining room or the china closet and take the cook with him. You must tell George he must walk on tiptoe and not speak, otherwise he will die some day. Then you must go up to the nursery and stand on a chair or the nurse's bed and put your car to the speaking tube that leads down the kitchen and when I whistle through it you must speak into the tube and say Welcome Santa Claus Then I will ask whether it was a trunk you ordered or not If you say it was, I shall ask you what colour you want the trunk to be Your mama will help you to name a nice colour Then you must tell me every single thing in detail which you want the trunk to contain Then, when I say goodbye and a Merry Christmas to my little Susie Clements You must say goodbye, good old Santa Claus and thank you very much And please tell that little snowflake, I will look at her star tonight, and she must look down here. I will be right in the West Bay window, and every fine night, I will look at her star and say, I know somebody up there, and like her too. Then you must go down to the library, make George close all the doors that open in the main hall, and everybody must keep still for a little while. I will go to the moon and get those things in a few minutes and I will come down the chimney that belongs to the fireplace that is in the hall if it is a trunk you want because I couldn't get such a thing as a trunk down the nursery chimney you know people may talk if they want until they hear my footsteps in the hall then you tell them to keep quiet a little while till I go back up the chimney maybe you will not hear my footsteps at all so you may go now and then and peep, peep through the dining room doors, and by and by you will see that thing which you want right under the piano in the drawing room, for I shall put it there. If I should leave any snow in the hall, you must tell George to sweep it into the fireplace, for I am at a time to do such things. George must not use a broom, but a rag, Elsie will die some day. You must watch George and not let him run into danger. If my boot should leave a stain on the marble, George must not wholly stone it away. Leave it there always in memory of my visit. And whenever you look at it, or show it to somebody, you must let it remind you to be a good little girl. Whenever you are naughty, and somebody points to that mark with your good old Santa Claus's boots made on the marble, what will you say? Little sweetheart, goodbye for a few minutes till I come down to the world and ring the kitchen doorbell. yellowing Santa Claus, whom people sometimes call the man in the moon. And that's the end of that Christmas tale. It's very interesting indeed. Very, very different. <laughs> it's not one that I've heard anyway. It's the first time that I've heard that. Yeah, interesting. What did you think of that? Let me know in the comments. I really want to know what you think. Thank you for listening and many blessings.